0: Hello and welcome to the MSL Consultant podcast. I'm your host and founder of MSL Consultant, Aoife O'Dwyer. Today on the podcast, I interview Laurie Lebson, head of US Medical Affairs at EMD Serono. We discuss the different MSL challenges and responsibilities at different stages of the product lifecycle and also how scientific storytelling is important to build long term relationships with KOLs. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Lori, and welcome to the MSL Consultant Podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited
0: to be here today. So before we discuss our topic today, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Of course, I would love to. So I am a PhD
1: by training. I received my PhD in neuroimmunology focusing on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's a bit of time ago. Um, and after I did a postdoc Um, in MS. So I did a National MS Society Fellowship postdoc at Johns Hopkins. And from there, I made the decision to join pharma. And I transitioned to to Teva Pharmaceuticals as an MSL and spent four fantastic years at the MSL and then moved up to an MSL manager And then eventually transitioned to a medical director at my current company, EMD Serono. And now I'm currently the head of Neurology and Immunology, which oversees the medical directors and the field medical team as well. So a fantastic journey across many different roles um, across pharma that have, I think, really helped shape
0: and kind of guide me who I am today. Amazing. Um, And so our topic today is going to be around MSL challenges and responsibilities at different stages of the life cycle. So before we get into this topic, um, what are the different stages of the product life cycle for those people listening who may not be aware of it?
1: Fantastic. And before I start, I do just want to say that the views and opinions expressed today are my own and may not reflect those of my employer, but it's a really fun opportunity to be in medical and pharma and really work across the different life cycles. And what are those different life cycles? So when we think of drug development, we can think from the very beginning when the drug is discovered, and we kind of view that as that preclinical phase when testing the molecule in the lab, maybe in animal models. And from there, it may go on to a phase one, Really understanding kind of first testing and, and humans um, and then goes to phase two, phase three, which is really what you utilize for when you're filing with the different agencies around the world. And then, of course, there are phase four, so post-marketing and really For medical affairs within pharma, we really start around that phase two life cycle, and we can talk a bit more about that, but that's really where the excitement and really the education and the fantastic role that MSLs can play in
0: really bringing forward um, this potential new molecule. Amazing. And yeah, I think it would be really great to dive into the different um, phases and the different role of MSLs at each phase. So looking at phase two, for example, an MSL who's been hired by a company who has a molecule in phase two, what types of activities would that MSL be doing?
1: Fantastic. It's
0: really an exciting point
1: where I think the MSL has the ability to carve out the future for that space and for that potential molecule. So when we think of, you know, the landscape today and how incredible all of the advancements have been with all the new therapies, you know, we're always looking to improve and help patient outcomes just a little bit better, really improve the standard of care for those patients. And so with phase 2 there is a great responsibility to kind of define what is that gap that currently doesn't exist in the landscape and really define that and build on that education and that knowledge. And this can sometimes bring, you know, really excitement around new scientific advancements of how we're looking. Maybe it's new MRI techniques, maybe different ways that you're articulating to your HCPs about that gap and how we're able to now see that the gap exists and we have a potential molecule. You may be using new lexicon or terminology that, again, as we're evolving our understanding of the disease, but it's a really fun dialogue to, I call it cautious optimism, where you're having those cautiously optimistic discussions around the science and the future and the possibility of how we can change the landscape for these patients. And so it's a really fun time if you're hired then to start building those relationships with individuals. You may have already had existing relationships with them. If they've, you know, been in the space for a while, you may be in phase two in a new indication in your company where you're learning who those thought leaders are. So you're defining who are those people that you want to be on the journey with you. So there's so many fun avenues, but it also requires a lot of, you know, due diligence, a lot of hard work of building those relationships and really building that trust and that credibility early on in this kind of cautious, optimistic period for phase two in the life cycle.
0: And I love that you um, you spoke about excitement as well, because often if there is a new molecule, particularly if it's in an underserved therapeutic area or it has some mode of action that can bring either better efficacy or a better tolerability uh, profile to patients as an MSL, it can be really exciting to speak to doctors about that because they're excited about the potential impacts it could have on their patients as well. I I think the fun part too
1: is, you know, you're the only individuals within the company that are having those conversations right at the phase two, this solely sits with medical. So you are the voice, you are the ones who are championing the future within your company, within this disease space. So it's a really great privilege to have as an MSL to help build that out. And you are that voice. So I think that's, what's also really exciting to be an MSL you have the chance to redefine the future. So it's It's a fantastic life cycle piece to be in as an MSL.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a brilliant point as well, that an MSL can have so much impact in general, but particularly in the early life cycle because medical are the ones that own those relationships and those conversations. And it's the insights from medical that ultimately shape um, the rest of the clinical trials and also how the product will be brought to market. Um, So if we move on then looking at phase three, um, what types of activities would an MSL do in uh, phase three?
1: Phase three is when
0: the fun really begins and you can really
1: get to roll up your sleeves. I think in phase two, again, I talk about cautious optimism. You know, people are ultimately waiting to see the phase three data. I think your HCPs will tell you, you know, this looks great, but I want to see the full clinical trial. So when you get that exciting news, when that phase three data is released and you get to go out and share that, I think that's really when the work begins because you want to make sure that people understand all that's entailed. And I think clinical trials now, again, have so many different endpoints and so many different outcomes because you're building on the legacy of the previous therapies that there's so much that needs to be articulated, both the positives and the potential risk-benefit profile. And so really getting the time to Make sure that not only, you know, the HCPs know it, but I think also something that's become more important as well is that PharmDs, your nurse practitioners, you know, the care continuum is is kind of growing and those who touch the patient, we want to make sure that all the individuals really understand the product potential profile that we hope that, you know, the agencies will align on when the labeling comes. But it's really a fun time, again, where medical will be bringing back the feedback and the insights, as you said, to help ensure that the strategy at launch, that the commercial teams will drive forward, really are representative of the feedback that the MSLs are gathering from the field. So it just builds on, I think, that excitement and the momentum. And again, I think it's one of those things to be able to bring a product to market is something that is so fantastic and exciting, a lot of work, but a really fun stage that again, the MSL gets to drive and lead within their territory.
0: And I loved how you talked about um, meeting not just with doctors, but maybe PharmDs and nurse practitioners as well, because phase three is a great opportunity for the MSLs to understand the patient journey more. Because as you said, all of these insights will be so useful um, when the product is registered. Um, and the wider um, pharmaceutical teams so not just medical, but also the sales reps will be talking um, about the product. So you, you talked about phase three. There's a lot of excitement. Um, what happens in Phase four? What happens when the product is registered?
1: And that is again,
0: I think building on the momentum of phase two and phase three. And
1: then phase four is really where you get your label and you really then go out and help support the community that is treating that patient population and really get to articulate all of the nuances and you know the opportunities and the data that are ultimately in the label. And so I think there is that opportunity, you know, communicating the label. There's also then a a really great opportunity to support clinical trial phase four work, ISS work that may occur, every company is different, but there's a really fantastic opportunity to bring new ideas that your clinicians may have to the company on how they want to look at some of the the data and how to do a a study post-marketing. And I think that's a really unique thing that we've seen more and more as time has gone on, that 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 link between the MSL and bringing those data generation ideas back to you know in house to really try and find that partnership and continue to address questions that may not have been you know answered in the Phase Three program, and then of course supporting the commercial colleagues because they will be learning all of this information at launch and there to help guide and give, you know, questions and support on questions they may be having as they're out having their sales conversations with the HCP. So it's really, I think, a great partnership externally, but then it's a really fantastic partnership internally, you know, within compliance, but to have that one team approach
0: post approval on on supporting a, a new therapy
1: to market. 100%
0: 100% and it's something that I've spoken about before as well that it's important even though medical and commercial have very different roles that it doesn't appear externally that they work within silos and there needs to be effective communication on roles responsibilities while maintaining compliance um, between these two groups of externally facing um, departments. There were a couple of phrases that you used and I'm conscious that some of the listeners are aspiring MSLs, so I'll just ask you to clarify them. So you used the phrase um, to get your label. Can you explain to those listening who might not be familiar what that means? Absolutely. So when you apply your phase three program, you apply to the regulatory agency.
1: So for example, here in the US, that would be the FDA. In Europe, you would apply to the EMEA and you you provide a wealth of information, preclinical, all the way through your phase three data. And ultimately the regulatory reviewers will look through the data and they'll ultimately decide who What type of patient? So, your indication, who is it approved for? You know, for example, I work in MS. There may be a subgroup of patients that the agency decides this drug may have a positive benefit risk profile. It will go through dosing and it will go through um, adverse events, different types of things that help dictate, you know, can you take the drug with food or not? All these things that, as an MSL, then you can help explain drug to drug interaction. All those types of things are listed within the label. So, you know, I think you go in as a company with what you like your label to look like, but ultimately the regulatory agencies make the decisions and you then are going out post-approval and communicating kind of that partnership between the the pharmaceutical company and the agency where they've landed, again, at the end of the day to ensure that patients, um, that they are taken care of, that the benefit and the support that they need as they're using this medication is really to, to give their quality of life an improvement.
0: Yeah. And uh, when I worked as an MSL in Australia, we would we would refer to the label as the product information. And I know it's different in different countries, but it's such an important document. to really understand, as you said, the indication, but the efficacy data and the safety data, any drug-drug interactions. It just has so much information that helps prescribers know the right patients um, that are suitable for that drug. Um, Another thing you mentioned, we were talking about phase phase four and ISSs, sometimes called different things in different companies, but can you explain a little bit about what they are? Absolutely.
1: I apologize, those two, because I know some people will call them ISTs. They will. So there's various different types of clinical studies and terminology post-approval. So you can have a phase four company-sponsored study. So typically that may be an open label study where you're, say you want to look at a different patient population or really focus in. So for example, maybe you want to focus a study on elderly patients or a certain subgroup that wasn't fully represented in your phase three. You may have a company sponsored where your company will drive that phase four program. There are also opportunities where investigators or your HCP may come and say, I want to study, let's say, cognition or understanding fatigue, various things in a small patient population. And that physician will drive the study within their site they will be in charge of making their protocol, everything, the company itself will help sponsor and fund that study. So I think that's a really unique partnership where you have you know, the community saying, I really am excited about this. I want to understand further in this type of setting, and it's almost a partnership. So it's a fantastic question of just really, there are different types of studies that can be done post-approval, and they're either kind of company-sponsored or ISS, IST, I'm not sure if you've heard of other terms um, that really are more the HCP-driven. They own that, but the company helps fund it.
0: Yeah, and it's such an exciting time, phase four as well, because healthcare professionals are actually using the drug, so you can get feedback not just on things like the molecular um, mechanism and how it works, but also how it's actually working for them in their clinical practice and get their clinical experience with your particular drug. And those insights are so useful to the company as well. And to your point, you mentioned that sometimes different data gaps will be identified by different KOLs. And if a KOL does partner with a company in an ISS or an ITT, um, it can be really useful then because often that KOL partner will be an advocate of the drug because they'll know a little bit more about it. And that means they're confident educating their peers about it as well. So a really important um, function and partnership between pharma and the healthcare community. And I
1: think to your point as well, you know, a phase three trial is very regulated. There are many different things that need to occur in a phase three program. And to your point, phase four often can be that real world, real utilization where things aren't so controlled and you can get that feedback, as you just said, which is really impactful for the day to day outside of a clinical trial setting of how that drug is working and having that fantastic dialogue um, as well between yourself as the MSL and the HCP.
0: So that's a great point. Yeah. Um, And so as we've been talking, the one thing that has become clear is that an MSL needs to really engage these KOLs early on in the product life cycle, they can't just wait till it launches and then think suddenly everyone will understand about the drug. So as this relationship development is core to all stages of the life cycle, what are some of the challenges facing MSLs today with regards to relationship development? Fantastic. I think
1: post COVID we've started to see it more offices open back up so there's an ability to go in and make those connections. I think one of the challenges is making sure that the time you're spending with the HCP is truly of value early on. So they feel that continual need to have you come back. So bringing information that's relevant. I think when I talked in the beginning about cautious optimism, one of the things you want to make sure you do in those early stages is not over promise. I think that HCPs want, and it's okay to say, we don't know this yet, but we're looking and we'll continue to learn because the last thing you want to do is over promise and then come in at phase three or later on and not have that information or, you know, not the correct what you have stated in phase two. So I think being a trusted and transparent partner early on that trust is critical and so bringing what's value but not over promising on what you have for a phase two, for example, where it's smaller numbers of patients. Um, I think that builds that credibility early on and will set you up for success for any of the life cycles to come.
0: Yeah, I really liked um, what you're talking about, not over promising, because when I hear that, it means that you're almost taking the KOLs on the journey with them, which helps build excitement as well. And as you said, it builds credibility because you're not saying, oh, well, look, we have this data in this small patient population. So this drug is gonna change the world. It's like, look, this is what we have now and it's exciting. And this is what we're doing for phase three. We'll let you know when that information is available. So you can really kind of bring them along and help build the relationship that way because then they feel party to the information and the story all the way along. Totally agree. And we're, we're living that now at my current company. And
1: I will say the feedback we get is positive where they'll say, we appreciate you acknowledge what you do and what you don't know. And again, I think, you know, sometimes we feel as scientists or, you know, clinicians, you know, within this role as MSL, we want to be able to answer everything. And I continue to tell the teams it's okay if you don't know, because we don't know. And that's why we continue to learn and do studies in phase three and phase four. And so
0: I think that trust really
1: does go a long way.
0: And one of the things that I often coach MSLs on is if they get asked a question and they don't know the answer, as you said, to be upfront and say, I don't know, but use it as an opportunity to gather further insights. But doctor, can you tell me a little bit more about why that is important to you? Um, because that can just help the MSL understand more about the root of the question and gain possibly very valuable insights um, from the KOL in that situation as well. Absolutely. Um, so. There's a lot of talk nowadays about scientific storytelling, and I know it leads into what we've been talking about. Can you provide a little bit of insight on what scientific storytelling is and and what it really entails for those people listening who may not be um, familiar with the term?
1: Absolutely, and I think this is an evolution that will continue to occur. I was thinking back even before COVID, when I I think a good example of this would be you would go to a scientific congress within your therapeutic area. And you will go and there will be hundreds and sometimes thousands of posters throughout the convention. As an MSL, you're looking through all of the competitors, your posters. And if you were to think back for those who have been in this for a while and for those who are aspiring, what you would have seen was a poster that was full of text. There would be no white space. Every inch of the poster was full of text. And you'd have to go up really close, you know, really get in there to understand And what we've seen as the evolution is that the posters that we're seeing even in this year at our Congresses are very simple. What is the message you want to communicate? There is a lot of white space. The figures are quite large. The methods have been reduced because we know that our attention span and our ability to process complex information We think of that scrolling through your phone and how you're processing very quickly, that's the type of scientific storytelling we need to evolve, we need to get our key messages out very quick and very succinct, but also with an emotional component, so we have a very short clear narrative, but you want to tell your story. And I think you said it beautifully earlier. You want to bring them on the journey with you. And to do that, think about that. Everyone wants to be part of something exciting, part of something big. You know, the reason the clinicians went into medicine is to change lives. And of course, they get frustrated when they have patients sitting in front of them that they can't fully treated to the capacity they want. So they are excited to be on that journey with you. So you want that emotional storytelling of why this matters, not just the data, but why this matters to them, to their patient. And again, that's part of that trusted, transparent partner that you're building this scientific story over time. You think of it as almost chapters and you're building this book together with them but there is that emotional component. And we all want that. We all want to feel good. Like we're making a difference in the world at the end of the day and how we communicate that is so important. Instead of just coming into the office and saying, I have this data set, here you go. Okay, any questions? Thank you. Leave them feeling inspired in their work for the rest of the day.
0: Amazing. That is such a beautiful way um, to describe scientific storytelling uh, and to finish up our episode today. Laurie, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I've learned a lot and I'm sure the audience uh, will have learned a lot as well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.